Hello, and welcome back to Our Foundations, where we discuss the biggest influencers in our society, and those are the systems of government, money, and education. In the previous episodes, we have gone through the origins of these three systems, and so now we're going to take this episode to kind of sum up where we are and cover some of the broad themes and big events that have happened in these long time periods that we just covered and kind of wrap that up so that we can move on into the next time period. We're going to start with four of the main themes that came up over and over again in our Origins episodes, and those are the family unit, religion, economics, and the state. Once we cover these, we're going to move on to some broader topics. We'll talk about the Great Conversation, we'll talk about the Industrial Revolution, and we'll talk about the concept of liberty and how it was influencing all these different areas over the time periods that we have just discussed. So, to begin with, let's go over the family unit. We heard in the origin stories of all these systems that the family unit was part of the beginnings. Um, The hierarchy in the family unit was one of the beginnings of government and the government systems that sprung up in early societies. We saw that as family units began to make things and farm and hunt and do things for themselves, that they had extras. And that's where bartering started to take place and the beginnings of money. We saw that families would pass along their skills and teach their children. And that was the beginnings of education. So we see that family and the family unit has been a very important factor in the beginnings, at least, of all three of these systems and in our society as a whole. The family, in a big way, is a social safety net. Family members took care of themselves and took care of each other. So you had a distribution of labor where different family members would specialize in different tasks, and they got very good at that. So the rewards of those labors and what they did when they completed those tasks and gained these skills benefited the family as a whole. So it was really good for everybody when one member excelled at a specific thing. And they did that. Each member did different tasks and learned different things and got very good at different things. And they supported the whole family in that way. So if you had one family member that got sick or that got injured, then the other family members would take care of them. As the kids were young, the parents would provide for them and take care of them. And as the parents got older and the kids got older, then the kids would take care of their parents. And that was just a natural social safety net that existed way before we had formal governments and welfare systems and social security and all these different things that we have now. Another aspect of the family unit was that the structure of the family was a morality check. So there were certain values and certain morals and ethical codes that families believed and that parents would pass along to their children and teach their children. And so that, in a sense, was where a person derived their sense of right and wrong. Oftentimes, this was religious 
but not always. Sometimes it was just what the parents believed was right and was wrong inherently. There are plenty of people that believe that all human beings have certain natural rights, and this doesn't have to be a religious deal. When someone does believe that, then the obvious conclusion would be that they'll teach their kids that, and their kids would learn that, and they would act that out, and that's how the children would live. And as they grow up, that's how they would interact with society and interact with others. They would tell others of their perspectives. And so you see that there's this moral component that comes out of the family unit and the family structure way before you had specific laws and formal religions um, that were dominating whole regions and different things like this, all the, the areas that we kind of think of when we think of where does morality come from and gets taught. We have so many other sources nowadays. A lot of it comes from the schools. Uh, but early on in early societies, all of that came out of the family unit. Another big impact that the family unit had on the origins of all these systems was that you had a system, a unit, where people were actually invested and they had vested interest in the other members of the group. So you see an incentive structure here where people want the best for those other members of their family unit. And they are vested in the family through their labors and their hard work, whether it be their duties in the family and their roles, such as hunting or farming or repairing clothes or cooking or whatever the case may be, these are things they did for the family as a whole. But it's also in some bigger projects that they would take on. So something like building their home, oftentimes the families would largely build their own homes and they would do this together. They would often get help from locals and friends and distant family and they would build a house on their own and the whole family was involved with that. There are many different tasks that involved the entire family. Harvest time was a really big one where pretty much anybody that could would help out and the whole family worked really hard to get the harvest in and that benefited everyone. So the advantage of this is that we see an incentive structure that's built in here where they do want to do what's best for the other members of the group, and the other members of the group want to do what's best for them. There is some sacrifice at times, as well as some taking back at times. There's give and take there, depending on need and depending on the situation. So this is a structure that is a little more ideal than the formal government structure that we talk about. And as we get more into government incentive systems, we'll see that it is definitely not as clear-cut and not as ideal as what we saw coming out of the incentive structure of the family unit itself. Moving on to the next topic that we saw coming up again and again in the origin stories is that of religion. So religion was a huge influence on all these systems. When it comes to government, many of the early governments were theocratic. They were based on religion. Uh, many were run by priests, and this was how people were ruled, and that was the beginnings of many early governments. You also saw that a lot of the laws that came up came directly from religious beliefs, 
and this was very common in early societies. Another aspect would be that of rhetoric and politics. So leaders and people wanting to be leaders, they would use religion to get more followers, to get more members, to get more support, and they would use rhetoric and they would use debate, and they would use propaganda and marketing and all these different techniques. And what they would do is they would take religion that they knew most of the people they would be talking to and interacting with believed in, and they would use that to win people over to their side. Another common concept was the divine right of kings, And this was used all the way back from the pagan religions to ancient Israel and early Christianity into the Middle Ages, all the way into the 17th century. And what this stated was that the ruler of the time, typically the king, had a divine right to rule. And that right was given to them by God or the gods or whoever the deity was that would have a right to issue these powers to a human being. And this was refuted majorly by John Locke. Um, We speak of the great conversation and the great books of Western history. Well, John Locke is one of those, and he had some profound ideas when it came to political theory, especially for his day. And he wrote uh, two treatises on government, and the first treatise specifically attacked a work called Patriarcha, which argued that there was a divine right given to kings, and it was a patriarchy that God had set up and ordained, and that that was the best way for a people to be governed and to be ruled, and that was the way that God demanded it. Well, John Locke basically totally destroyed this argument in the first treatise on government, and uh, basically proved biblically, since this was a biblical argument, that that was not the case and that could not be proven by the Bible. And on the contrary, if you really look back in the scriptures, you would actually find that the opposite is true. And moving on to his second treatise on government, he then goes to explain that we all as humans have natural rights and that governments do not have the right to infringe on those. And he lays out what he believes the role of government to be and what those limits should be. When we look at the money aspect, we saw that religious organizations and more formal churches and places like this, mosques, they had a lot of wealth. In different times in society, there have been feudal systems that were set up where a specific church, for example, owned a whole bunch of land and their congregation members lived on that land and worked that land. And then the produce of their labor would go back to the church and probably the priest that ran that church. And so this church would then have lots of money, lots of wealth, lots of commodities, and they, they dictated to a large extent things like taxes and welfare systems and infrastructure and just all these different decisions that we see that really governments make now there were kind of microcosms that have existed in different times where a religious institution was taking on this role. They also, at different times, took the role of banks. 
So we saw that sometimes specific religious institutions would hold money and take money and loan out money and start to do many of the different things that we think of as banking nowadays. Religion has had no less impact on education than it has in these other areas. We saw that more formalized education really came up out of religious beliefs and religious needs. That was the basis for the majority of formal educational institutions. This is especially true of higher learning institutions, things like universities, but we saw that even a basic education is very needed when you want to be able to study and learn and interact with a specific religion or religious text. And in order to get their members and their followers to be able to do this, these institutions and these religions would have to educate those people to some extent. So even just the common people that are going to these services and participating with these congregations, they needed to be able to read, usually. They would need to be able to think fairly clearly, to think critically, to be able to analyze stories, to pick out themes, to make connections, things of this nature. And this was something that they all would need to do. So even if it wasn't in a formal setting, even if it was in a Bible study setting, for example, these common members would learn how to do this. They would learn how to study. They would learn how to learn from reading. And this would just be natural because they would be studying the text. So if they were studying the Bible, they would be reading the stories of the patriarchs and of the judges and of all these different people and time periods. They would also be reading about theology. They would be reading about different events that happen that did not fit with the main goals that were being preached in their religion, and they would have to come to terms with that and figure out why that was. Why did you see people acting in a sinful way, and you know it's a sinful way because you have learned that already, but then why are these people in the Bible acting that way? They would you know, have to think that through. That's a very obvious thing that you would have to deal with. And in order to do that, you would have to learn how to dig in and study deeply and make different connections with other sections of text and other principles and precedents and things of this nature. So all of this is learning. This is education. And that is, in a broad way, where more of our formal education and a lot of our common education came from in early societies. It was in order to be able to participate in a specific religion, and a lot of it was facilitated by religions. Economics is another theme that has been lurking in the background through this whole time that we've been looking at these systems. It is at the core of each one of these systems, and it plays a major role in how they work and what their structures are modeled on and how they play out in society. So with government, governments are expensive. The whole point of a government is to rule over a group of people and do things for those people and make decisions for those people. Well, if you're going to do that, 
that's going to cost money, period. There's no getting around it. If it's not going to cost any money, then you probably don't really need a government for it. And so generally, governments take on taxes, and then they use that money to pay for things like protection and war and welfare and things of this nature. So in order to make these decisions and get the money and spend the money, all of this is wrapped up in economics. So it is very important for governments to understand economics and see how these different economic aspects actually impact the decisions that these governments are making. Because anytime you're buying and selling things, anytime you are trading value, you are participating in an economic transaction. And so that's a limit, a bound that is set upon a government, period. The interesting thing about a government is that it's kind of like a shadow economy. They do what they want to do and make their own decisions, oftentimes behind closed doors and without the direct input of the people that are most affected by it. So they can perform these different transactions and these different decisions outside of the public eye. And so it is kind of this shadow economy. And with this aspect, as well as with other aspects of the structure of governments in general, you end up with a warped economy. You have these warped economic incentives that are involved where the government is going to get basically however much money they want. They can demand money and they will get it. And if not, they will spend some of that tax money to force others to give them their money. And so they basically have as much money as they are able to get without causing a revolt and they can spend it however they see fit. They can decide their own salaries, as long as they are not doing it to the extent that causes a revolt. Um, that's really their only check on power, is that the people rise up against them. And it takes quite a bit for the people of a society to rise up against their government. It has happened many different times throughout the ages, and I'm sure it will happen again many different times. But in general... It is not going to happen unless there are extremes that are taking place. So if you're looking at the broad incentive structure, governments don't really have that much of a check on how much money they take in and how they use that money. If they use it inefficiently, then, you know, so what? Not really that big of a deal. If one of their projects is not very effective, then, well, too bad. They're still getting more money anyway, so, you know, oh well, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of interesting, even in the modern day, I would say especially in the modern day, when governments can print their own money, then it's even worse of an issue. So we see that the economics involved with how a government is run is different than the economics of a free market system, and it's different in a bad way. It is not as efficient, it's not as effective. There is not an incentive to do the best and have good business practices put at a good product at a cheap price because they don't have to. The product can be bad and it can be very expensive and they will still get their tax money. So it's a very interesting um, structure that's set up there. 
When we move on to money, we hinted at this with governments printing money um, and then collecting taxes. But money in general is the tool for economics. So no matter what you do in the economy, you are using money or a money substitute. So money enables grand scale economics. You can do lots of trade, and it had been done in the ancient world, without the use of actual money, with just bartering and commodities. However, when we get to the extent of world trade that is taking place near the end of the time periods that we had discussed, more like the 18th, 19th century time period, you really do need money in order to interact and trade on that scale with many different, dozens of different countries involved, all kinds of different products and different trade routes and different people involved between the merchants and the cities and the governments. And this it's very complicated and it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible to do without a formal money, without currencies. Currencies are now becoming a new commodity. They are a tangible product that is transacted with and for that does not necessarily have a set value associated with it. So many of the currencies, especially later on, do not have the same weight in, let's say, gold as the currency is valued at by the government. So a government will say that this coin represents an ounce of gold when that coin actually only has half an ounce of gold. So there is this discrepancy there, and based on that, that coin will be valued by others in other countries and other merchants based on the faith they have in that issuing government. And so it is priced in a way that may be exactly what the government says it is, but it also might be steeply discounted. It might be at face value, at 50% of what the government said it would be, or somewhere in between there, just depending on the faith that the people using it have in the issuing government. So these coins and this money are now being valued and traded just like a commodity, just like corn or livestock or any other commodity where you have to find a value for it because it is not necessarily the inherent value that that thing has. So this is an interesting evolution in global economics at the time. Moving into education, economics has a big impact on both the how and the why when it comes to especially more formal education. So as far as the how... In order for someone to get an education or go to a school or hire a tutor, that costs money. And so these institutions or these individuals are having to set rates and they are charging certain amounts and they are trying to get as many customers as possible or they're pricing high and trying to just get a few exclusive customers. And so they're having to make these economic decisions based on things like price and the market conditions, supply and demand, and things of this nature, things related to economics. We see that the why for 
education is oftentimes an economic reason. So we discussed how religion impacted education and how that was a big deal and a big reason why people were educated. On the other side of that, to take up the majority of the rest of the pie, we see economics has the biggest impact next to religion on why people were educated. Because in order to run a successful business, in order to be able to manage a large-scale business or keep up with the books and accounting, um, in order to basically write down anything, they were manually keeping track of everything. They didn't have computers. They would write it all down. And in order to do that, you would obviously have to be literate, but you would also want to be as highly educated as possible so that you would be able to do these things well and have a successful business and therefore make a lot of money. That's always the goal. And so we see that there is an economic incentive to be taught well. A natural system that comes up out of the dynamics of a public that is partially educated on a low level and partially educated on a high level is that of a class system. So when you think of it, it's pretty obvious that if someone has a very basic education, then they are probably not going to be very desirable in the workforce, and they are also going to have a harder time making something of themselves, and so naturally they are likely to not make as much money as someone who has a high level of education and therefore is highly desired in the workplace, or if he chooses to go out on his own or her own, they are much more likely to be very successful in this because of the education they have received. And so you naturally have this class system that evolves. The other dynamic of this class system is that in order to get a higher level of education, it generally costs money. And the people that are able to afford that better education, mainly the parents that are able to afford it for their children, are those that have money and they have extra money to spend on this. So you have this cycle that continues where those with a higher education make more money and the way they get that education and the way they get it for their children is to spend that money that they made. Therefore, it is the certain upper class, the managerial class, that tends to continue on and on. And we see big family lines that grow large businesses and pass it on and on and on. And we see families like the Medicis, for example, that have such a big influence on society at the time. And these skills and this wealth and this education is passed on and on. And this is much more common as we see formal education systems starting to come up before we have what we have now and more common education for all. Now, this is not only what we think of as book knowledge, but also in the trades and in the crafts. If a person wants to learn a trade, typically they would apply for an apprenticeship and they would learn that trade over a period of, it could even be a decade. It was a long period of time of hard work that they would really get to know the craft. The other way that they did learn different aspects of their craft is through reading, but mostly it was either self-taught or taught by the master craftsman. But either way, people that had this education in that skill had the same dynamic as people with an education in philosophy and business management and all these other areas 
they had the ability to make more money, to earn more, to be more desirable in the workforce, and they could charge more for their products than someone that had a low level of education in that particular skill or that particular craft. And so, again, you see this differentiation start to appear where you have those, whether it be in the trades or whether it be in business or whether it be in government, it's those that have money are the ones who get the best education. Therefore, they are able to make more money and support that and pass along that cycle to their children. And so this is where we see the class system come up in a very obvious way is through the economics of education. Moving on to the final theme that I will cover, we see that state control has grown and grown and grown as we went through the origins of each one of these systems. They generally all started out with the local society, with the family unit, with a small group of individuals, and it grew into having this large state apparatus that ran practically everything. The government's ended up with the ability to make all the decisions for everybody. They were the ones who decided what was best for everyone. And usually that term everyone usually just dictated the nation or territory itself that that government ruled over. And what was best for the nation was usually just what was best for the government. And what's best for the government is usually best for the governors or the king or whoever was in charge. So oftentimes, this was another one of those cases of a warped incentive model here. But when you have centralized power and centralized control, all dictated by a centralized government, then that's basically just naturally what you end up with. You have a group of people at the top that are ruling over everyone else, and they're going to make the decisions that are best for themselves. Now, there were plenty of times when you had rulers that did what was best for the people and wanted what was best for the people. However, you also saw oftentimes that they did what was best for themselves or for their friends and the other people in government or in their royal family or whatever the case may be. And so as we see more state control, we see more warped incentives for how to use that power that they have gained. We also see this in the role of currency. As we began to see state-backed currencies that were issued by the state, we started to see that this added this same warped incentive model when it came to currencies. We talked about this when we mentioned economics earlier, and so I won't go over that again, but the reason that this is able to exist is because of the centralized state control. As state control grew, the state also started to take control over commerce and taxes and trade. So the government would be the ones that would determine what the tax rates were. They would determine what the tariffs are for imports and for exports and what was allowed to come into the country and to leave the country and what was allowed to be produced. And basically a lot of these decisions and a lot of these aspects that are made by a certain business or an individual 
or decided by the open market, these centralized governments and centralized states were starting to take over that role and deciding for themselves. The ideal may be that you have an expert that is going to know more than the businessman or the merchant, and so this expert and government is wise, and that person is able to tell you exactly what you should sell your goods for and what you should charge for your outgoing goods um, as far as tariffs are concerned, and what's the maximum amount you might be willing to pay for goods coming into the country, and then what tariffs do you levy on imports in order to impact the state as a whole, as far as how much money and revenue they have coming in, as well as how that impacts the local economy. So if you're bringing in wool from sheep, but you have a lot of wool that's being produced in your own country, then you might want to slap a hefty tariff on that incoming wool, and that will bring the demand down, in which case your local producers are able to produce more and take more market share because even though they have an inferior product that they charge more for, with the tariff that is slapped on the incoming wool, they are still able to put this local wool to market and make money and sell it just because of the inflated price that was put on the imports. And all this is being decided on by the state. It's not being decided on by the local producers or by the merchants that are selling into the country. It's being decided by the state itself. This is arguably not a very good structure because, as we have discussed, there is this warped incentive system, and we typically do not see this wise, all-knowing person in government making these decisions. Sometimes there are experts that are very good at their jobs, but oftentimes through history, we see people making these decisions that definitely do not have any more right to make them than the business people themselves that are involved in these different trades and these different practices and these different exchanges. We started to see states sticking their hands in the education system as well. So instead of letting this be ruled by the market where people would pay for the education that they wanted for their children and people would join up for apprenticeships and do that, whatever the case may be that they want to learn and need to learn, they were doing it. Well, the governments were able to start to play off of this class system that began to develop here and say, hey, don't worry, we will step in and help teach you, and we will teach the masses ourselves and provide this basic education for them. Now, on one hand, this is great because we do start to see education for the people in a broad way. And this is good because even the lowliest of the citizens are able to get a basic education, oftentimes without paying or without paying much at least, and this is provided by the state. Now, the negative aspect of this is that if the state controls what you learn and how you learn it, then there is... There's a lot of risk for them to use that power in a way that is not the most beneficial for each individual. 
So they might want to make a more complacent citizenry, people that are more easy to manipulate and easy to control, people that respect authority and follow commands and things of this nature. And this can be taught to them as they're going to these state-run schools. This is easy to do. So although this did not happen in every society, we did see this in many different societies coming up through the time periods that we looked at. And this was a method that different states and different governments did use. And it makes sense. They have an incentive to do this. We are seeing this word incentive come up over and over again when it comes to talking about the state because the state operates under a different incentive model. Their incentive is not to make every person and every citizen extremely smart, extremely knowledgeable, extremely skilled, able to think for themselves and think critically and question authority. No, they don't want this, because if you have that, then you have people that are questioning the government, that are not directly following orders, that are keeping you in check when you as a government want to spend money on something that may not be the best decision, or hoard a little extra for yourself, well, if you have an extremely well-educated citizenry, they're going to catch on to that, and they're going to call you out on that, and they're going to know how to stop you. And you don't want that as a government. What you want is the majority of the people to just have this basic level of education and to be very complacent, and then you want to handpick certain individuals and certain groups, probably from certain families, to be the managerial class and to be the government class. And when you select these individuals and these groups, you can give them a higher education. You can move them on to whether it be higher and better schools or whether it just specifically be the teachers and the curriculum that they are learning the government is able to dictate who gets that higher learning and who are those individuals that will be asking more questions and will be harder to manage and deal with. But what they can do is pick out people that they think will be best for their goals and that they can use. So although you see that when a government gives education to everybody, there is a leveling out of the class system that we discussed earlier when we talked about um, the economics of education and that creating a class system between the commoners and the managerial class. We see that getting leveled out when a government provides education for everyone. However, we also see it carried on. It does not stay leveled out because the government typically will start to favor those in a royal family or those that... Uh, are associated with noblemen or that they think will do very well in hand-picked positions or in government or whatever the case may be, we see the government does continue on with this class system and that their incentive as a government to govern over a large group of people is to have this class system. It makes sense. So it is just natural for them to do so. Now, that wraps up the four themes that I wanted to discuss that we saw coming out of these different origin stories. Now I want to discuss um, a few different concepts and topics here, and I would like to start with the great conversation. This is something that I alluded to in one of the earlier episodes, 
but it is a very important concept that we need to at least touch on. So over the ages, from the time periods we've looked at, and that was thousands of years, uh, technically, there have been many different people and individuals and groups that have discussed the same concepts and the same ideas over and over again. And these are things like politics and political theory, uh, morals and rights, things like the sciences and where did we come from? Why are we here? Some of these big questions. We see that over the centuries, there have been these conversations that take place about these topics. And I say conversations in a broad sense. The term, the great conversation, comes from a set of books called The Great Books of the Western World that was put out by the Encyclopedia Britannica. And this was in 1952, where they put together all these, you know, great classics from long ago up until more recent times. And they put it all into this huge volume um, or multiple volumes. And this is where we first see the phrase, the great conversation. And what this just refers to is all of these different authors over this huge span of time have gone back and forth about these topics, about political theory, about government structures, about economics, about morality and religion and just all these different things, there is this conversation that develops when you follow from Homer to Plato to Aristotle to Shakespeare, Marcus Aurelius, just all these different thinkers, even moving on to people like John Locke and David Hume. Um, it spans centuries but we see these common themes and this common thread that is carried on that we are calling a conversation where Plato might talk about the negatives of democracy and how it's a really bad idea, but then maybe a hundred years later, you see another philosopher come out and talk about the perils of the system that Plato discussed. So you have something like Machiavelli's The Prince, where it talks about, you know, if you're going to be a great, magnificent ruler, this is how you have to be. You have to be ruthless. You have to do whatever it takes to gain power, to keep power, and to put other people down. And so out of that, we see the negative side of maybe a system that Plato might have wanted and instituted, but it could be carried out in a way that is not good for society. And so we see this back and forth between these different authors over the centuries, and this is what we call the great conversation. And this is something that is going on through this whole time period that we have discussed, as well as on into more the present day. But it is a resource that not only we can look on and learn from for our own personal educations, but that society has pulled from over the years. And we'll probably touch on this a little bit in later episodes as well, but it's a concept I at least wanted to mention because it begins and a large part of it takes place in the time periods that we discussed in the Origins episodes. The next topic will be another big event in history that was a big change for society as a whole, and that is the Industrial Revolution. 
So this took place in the 18th and 19th centuries, and it impacted pretty much every aspect of society. It changed how businesses operated. It changed how farms were worked. It changed how governments looked at the economy. It changed everything. It changed people's basic lives and their daily lives. But what usually comes to mind when people think of the time period of the Industrial Revolution and factory life of that time is that it was terrible. It was horrible. It was There was horrible child labor and people that were getting maimed and that were dying in these factories. Workers were having to work overnight and 24-hour days and just, you know, all this terrible stuff. However, there is an argument and another side to this story. To begin with, let's look at where a lot of these ideas came from. Well, there was a report that came out called the Sadler Report, and what happened was someone went around to many different towns and to many different areas that had factories and big business in them and interviewed a lot of the locals. Now, they did not go into the factories, and they didn't actually interview the workers of the factories, just random people out and about, and asked them about um, the life of these factory workers and the conditions that they worked under. And they got all these horror stories, basically, and came back to the government there and said, look, we have this report, we've done all these interviews, and factory life is horrible. Um, they're working these children that don't need to be working, they're working too long hours, they're getting crippled and dying, you know, all this horrible stuff. And so the government looks at it and says, you know, well, this is horrible. Not only does the government see this, but they issue it to the press, and that's where it really gets out and about. So the whole public hears all this horrible stuff about life in the factory. And when the factory owners and the businessmen see this, they start to wonder, you know, where did this come from? My factory is not like this, so you know, are, there, are there really other factories that are this bad? I, I kind of doubt it. That doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it ends up being questioned, and the government comes to realize that these people didn't even step into the factories and inspect them at all, nor did they interview the actual workers there or the people that ran the factories. And so the government instituted their own committee to investigate this situation, and they actually did go to the factories. They actually did interview the workers and the owners, and that report came back saying that it wasn't nearly as bad as what the Sadler report stated it as, that conditions actually were decent in most places. There were a few cases where some bad stuff was going on, but in general, things were good. It wasn't really that big of a deal. Now, we, looking back, may still think that it wasn't very great and that it was horrible working conditions, but we have a very different perspective from the people of that time period. According to the people of that time period, their real wages were actually going up in this time period, and they were able to get decent jobs and all this stuff. Well, when the government had this report redone, they came out with it and basically refuted the Sadler report. However, the press didn't really pick up on on this new report because it wasn't quite as sensational. It wasn't quite as interesting. It didn't really get the readership, and so they didn't really run with it the same way. So what ended up happening is public opinion was very down, 
and they vilified these factories. Now, at the same time, you also had churches that were vilifying factories and the factory owners and even the factory workers themselves because mainly they were working on Sundays. And this was very bad because that meant they weren't coming to church. They weren't honoring the Sabbath and things of this nature. It was against what the church was preaching and therefore it was evil and it was bad. And so that's what the commoners were hearing from all sides, from the press, from their church, and through this from most of the people around them. And so basically factories did not have a very good reputation at this time. So what ended up happening is that the government was asked to make some policy decisions and institute some laws. That's where we had child labor laws come into effect and things of this nature. But the reality is that most of this came out of this false idea of what was really going on and what conditions were really like. And it wasn't very fair. Uh, There were children that were working in these factories, but usually it was because the factory owners needed more workers. And so what they said is that we don't only need the men here. You can bring your wives and they can come and work here too. Well, if the husband and the wife were there, then what are you going to do with the children? Well, hey, they can come too. We have some machinery and some processes that are really simple. You basically just take this stuff out of this machine and put it in this other machine. That's it. Or you just feed this material into a machine and that's really all you have to do. You know, even a kid could do it. And so they did. And um, this wasn't necessarily a horrible thing. Kids weren't dying left and right and losing limbs all the time. Um, That's a huge exaggeration out of something like this out the report. But um, out of this, you did end up having a lot more government control, a lot of government regulations, things like this. Even though when you think about it, the incentives of the businessman are going to be to run the most efficient business possible. In order to do that, you need good workers that are reliable, that are skilled, that are doing their jobs well, and so you want to incentivize them to do so. So you actually are going to pay them fairly decently. If you do work them really long hours, you're going to pay them for it. There are instances where some factories actually started up schools within the factories that the kids could go to while their parents were working during the day. There are examples of factories starting up charities and helping people out. Um, There's an interesting example of the issue of the setting in the factory, because it was very kind of dark and closed in and gloomy. And, you know, this isn't ideal. Ideally, you'd have a bunch of windows everywhere. Well, the problem is that there was something called a window tax. So when these factories were being built, um, France and England were the main places for this, they had to pay a tax on every single window. So the business owners were actually incentivized by the government to not have very many windows, even though maybe they would have wanted to because it's a lot cheaper to have natural light coming into your factory. It definitely brings up morale if you're not closed in this building with no windows and no natural light at all. But if they were going to do this, they'd have to pay a lot more taxes. And, you know, that's not something you really want to do. You're trying to put as little money as possible into it and make as much as possible out of it. So the incentives for a businessman is not 
to overwork all your workers and give them horrible working conditions and run, you know, really sloppy business because you're going to go out of business. You're not going to put out a very good profit. They're not going to be very efficient with their work and you're going to have a lot of screw ups and, you know, this isn't good. If you have people die in your factory, other workers are probably not really going to be very quick to jump in and take their place because, you know, they probably value their life and they don't want to lose it. So that's just a brief overview of some of the counter arguments for the horrors of the Industrial Revolution. But the point is that the Industrial Revolution was going on and has just happened in the time period we covered at the end of that. And we see a new life and a new society that comes up out of that where you have assembly lines and you have big machines and large factories and just this total different economy. We see government stepping in a lot on it. We see a lot of money that's flowing in and out that wasn't there before. We see education needing to change as well because there are different skills that are required in the workplace. And so this impacts all these different systems. Now, the last thing I want to touch on briefly is the aspect of liberty. So the concept of liberty is that of freedom. It's that of the individual making their own choices that, you know, I can decide to do what I want to do with me and for me. And that is liberty. That's freedom. We saw many free societies, and oftentimes these freer societies were more successful than those that were under a very strict, centralized government. We see that some aspects of liberty really helped some of the biggest empires succeed. If you look at the empire of Alexander the Great or the empire of Rome or the Persian Empire, there is this aspect where when they would conquer a territory, they would leave behind a ruler and they would still have to follow the laws of the empire. But in general, they were allowed to continue their culture and their religion and their daily lives the way they wanted to. And they had the liberty to live as they saw fit, as long as they followed the laws of the empire. And by using this strategy, these great empires found that there was a lot less revolt and there was a lot less discontent that spread along these territories that they conquered. So this was a very good thing. They were able to use this concept of liberty, give it to the people that they just took over, and actually see a lot less kickback from these citizens. The time period we're coming into with the 18th and 19th centuries is oftentimes referred to as the liberal era. And this is not modern-day liberalism. This is classical liberalism that's based off of the word liberty, where it is more of a laissez-faire approach by government. It's very hands-off. It's very free market-oriented, low taxes, low tariffs, low regulations. Basically, um, these big businesses are starting to come up. A lot of trade is going on between different countries. And there is a large overall trend to allow these markets to just exist and operate the way that they naturally do. And um, this is the overall trend that we see. Now, there is still plenty of regulation. There's plenty of taxes, plenty of all different kinds of government involvement here still. But 
as a general idea compared to these very authoritarian governments that had existed in the prior centuries, um, it is a much more liberty-focused approach that is going on. We look at money, however, and we see a lot less control by the people. We see a lot less liberty that is being given to the people when it comes to how they spend their money, how they are able to control what type of money they're using. So with this, we see more corruption, we see more instability. There's more forgery and debasement being done by governments than is being done by their citizens. At the beginnings of this later time period, there is a high level of liberty that is given in the field of education, where people are still choosing what type of education their kids are getting. They are learning a lot for themselves. Um, Usually there's only a few years of formal learning, and a lot of the other education is being done on the job, being done through apprenticeships, being done by tutors, being done by the family, things of this nature. However, we see at the end of this later time period that a lot of this liberty is starting to be removed and that states are starting to come in and take over this role and provide the education themselves and be the determinators of how people will be educated and what they will be educated on. So the aspect of liberty is something that at first starts to grow in a major way coming out of these very authoritarian governments and empires, and we start to see empires giving more freedom and more liberty, and then different countries as a whole that are starting to get more on the classically liberal side of things, being bigger on capitalism. A very influential book that came out around this time was The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, and there he proposed that the wealth of a nation does not lie in its gold reserves or currency reserves, but rather in how much that country produces. And in order to maximize wealth and maximize trade, it is actually best to have a tariff-free policy where you let the markets decide what prices would be and have specific countries specialize in what they're good at. So if another country is good at a specific area, then let them be good at it and purchase things from them. And whatever area that your country is good at, then excel and focus on that. You don't have to produce everything yourself. You don't have to protect every industry in your own nation because it's okay if another nation does it better. You actually end up getting a cheaper product because of that. So go for it. But as this time period starts to come to a close, we see a shift that is starting to happen. We're going back to more state control and less liberty and less decisions by the individual and more decisions by the state and more of a collectivist attitude. That's the last thing that I wanted to cover for this episode. Our next episode will be on ancient Israel, and we will focus on governance versus government. The Israelites did have a formal system of governance, but it was very localized and they did not necessarily have a formal government the way that we would think of it. And so we'll analyze this and look at this and should be very interesting. After that, 
we will get back to our trifecta of government, money, and education and look at the modern history of these systems as we wrap up the historical aspect of the podcast and move on to an assessment of our current state of affairs. I've added a few things to our website, and if you would like, you can go check that out. It might be interesting for you, and that is at ourfoundations.podbean.com. I added a rough outline for what Season 1 looks like for the podcast as a whole, as well as a resource page that has a list of some of the influential authors and podcasts and content that has influenced me and that I have learned a lot from. And so I went ahead and made a list. Um, That way you can have an idea if you are interested in some of these concepts and learning a little more yourself. The other new thing is that there is a link for shopping at Amazon. And if you use that link and then just do your normal shopping, whatever you would normally buy on Amazon, we will get a small commission based off that that will go towards supporting this content and helping out with the hosting fees and things of that nature so all you have to do is click on the link it'll take you to amazon and then just do your shopping and that's it so if you want to follow us any other way we're on twitter at foundations pc we also have an email address that you can reach us at at any time and that is our foundations at protonmail.com And we also have the Patreon page that you can go to if you want to support us in that way or have access to some bonus content through that. And that is patreon.com slash our foundations. So please check us out at these different areas. And that's it. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.